another weekend because we love recording on weekends and totally inconveniencing people with our uh, podcast timing. So we have another guest. We have uh, Bill Kenny. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. So uh, let's go through the very typical intro. Like, what do you do? How you got to where you are today? Um, so we'll start there. Uh, I'll do the short answer first, which is the what do I do? How I got here is like a long answer, so I'm going to try not to blend those into a single answer. Uh, so what do I do? I uh, co-founded a brand agency 10 years ago. It's called Focus Lab. Uh, my official title at Focus Lab is Chief Creative Officer. So if we just want to kind of like dumb that down, distill it. Uh, I lead the production team, if you will, which is now 10 years later, it's, it's more than just designers on the team. We've got communications people. So th think of all the things that go under a brand umbrella, which is visual representation, design, you've got the written word, how they speak, you've got strategy, why do we make those decisions within a branding project? So all those things that are like the production outputs of a brand agency, I'm at the head of that. In Focus Lab, um, just for our listeners as well, in the design world, a uh, very well-respected agency. I know personally a lot of the work that you have been uh, working through and creating and generating over the last like five or six years has turned a lot of heads. Um, you've had some great clients, and I think there's a lot of people, um, again, in the design industry industry that look to you all as kind of a leader in that in that aspect. So it's awesome to have you here uh, to talk about that kind of in depth and uh, pick your brain a little bit because I know that I've been a fan for a while. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I would just say that um, I do feel blessed that we've been able to achieve that. I think a lot of that recognition still lives within a kind of like a certain bubble, and I'm excited for Focus Labs bubble to grow, quite honestly. Um, if we wanted to kind of pinpoint that bubble, I think we got a lot of attention eyeballs in around the Dribble community as that was kind of really getting some legs and we were a big name there. So yeah, we got in front of a ton of peers um, like yourself. So um, so yeah, it's great. It's cool to have like, you know, even as a small 20 person company, that, you know, originally based out of Savannah Remote Now, we can talk about that. Um, but to have people like know us, it's like, wow, it's pretty cool, small world. So let's start with kind of, the, I think, the, the fundamentals. What is brand? Because I feel like for oh a lot of our listeners, and I, I, we don't have to go super <laughs> yeah. in depth about it, but uh, I know that for a lot of listeners, or even for myself. I'm packing it. Uh, right. We, we perceive brand as something that's kind of like, it's just there, right? If mm -hmm. we think about a company like Netflix or Adobe or Microsoft or any other company, it's just kind of like, yeah, the brand is why, like their logo, the way they maybe put their site together. And a lot of people from the outside don't really see kind of this in-depth uh, detail that goes into it. So talk a bit more about that. Like, what do you do? How do you think through the brand process? Uh, what, what goes in it? So you've asked like the million dollar question and, and I'll do my best <laughs> to gracefully unpack this. Um, I think there's an airplane flying over. Forgive me if, that, if there's noise there. Uh, so what is brand? Like such a large question. How do you define that? I, I think a lot of the problem, which is both a problem and kind of like the true hidden value is like you, you can't fully define brand. It is so many things all wrapped up in itself. Some of it um, very easy to identify. Some of it nearly impossible to identify. And it all kind of creates this, this brand expression that happens. Um, so if we want to think on a surface level, like what is brand, let's get, let's go to these like very tactical things and, and I'll speak from even within our camp and then I'll, I'll get outside of that. So visual design, visual language, what a brand actually looks like, 
um, you know, early on at Focus Lab, I, I'm even comfortable saying now that like brand to us was still very much a design exercise, right? It was logos and it was color palettes and it was typography. And, you know, as we've grown and matured and evolved as an organization, we realize that it is so much more and we are still only a small piece of that. So now you start to think about what does a brand look like? What does a brand sound like? How does it speak? How is it positioned? What is its mission? What does it care about? Um, all those things. And now get on top of that, uh, you start to think about what is its product? How well does this product serve its customers? What type of customer service and relationship does that brand have with its customers? What does that brand stand for? Even outside of its own um, customer market, like in a, in a like within a society, what does a brand stand for? So then you put all those things together. You put a big times 10 for like 10 years of that thing multiplying and compounding. And now you start to have like, what is a brand, right? So to say like, well, what is Nike? It's like, well, it's certainly not just a sneaker company, right? If we all think about like what, how Nike makes us feel, this emotional and psychological aspect, that's really where the brand's power is. And you can't put your finger on it because there's been so many things that have happened over now, for, you know, for Nike specifically, multiple decades to have that immediate, immediate resonance for you to say like, I resonate with that brand. I only buy Nikes. I want to wear Nike clothes. Well, why? It's not because the fabric is necessarily that much better. It's not because, you know, yeah, sure. There are some things that they get to own, but there's not that much secret sauce in an organization like that. So you're really buying into their values. Um, so there's a, a little bit of a me getting on a soapbox, but also not trying to just speak at length, maybe to answer that one question. Mm -hmm. You cannot immediately define what a brand is because it's just all those little parts. So at Focus Lab, what we're trying to do is say, what part of the, of the chain are we in and what are we affecting? How are we influencing that brand as they're coming out with a new version of themselves, repositioning themselves, and how can we help with that? Um, and that's what you'll see our offering grow to fill and, and kind of stay within that world. Right. And, and this, this is the, I guess the, the simple answer is a like brand is not just design. It's not just the right. visual appearance of a brand. Because when we, That's right. when we we hear brand, the first thing that is like, oh, it's the, the logo. It's or the Apple logo. whatever the commercial, right? right? Like yeah. For Nike, like you and, see Colin Kaepernick doing something and you're like, oh, that's the brand. But there's so much more that goes into it. Yeah. And as a designer starting in the field, a lot of people are turned in, you know, they actually got their interest because of branding. Um, they maybe fell into it because they saw an ad or they saw a creative or they saw a project that was generated by and for a brand. Um, maybe it was by an agency, but I think it goes back to like, you know, who are you? Who needs to know? Um, how are you going to tell them? Because that's like massive now, like keeping yep. up with the, the ability to tell people things like TikTok, all the new platforms that are out there, you have to be like really quick on your feet. And that's why there's agency retainers, right? Like that's why big companies retain top talent or top agencies to kind of stay in the know and stay right. connected to their audiences. Because yeah, you have a great brand. You have this moat that you built, your Coca-Cola. Everybody knows that, but you need to still be where your audience is and where they're going. Um, and then just why should they even care, right? Bill, I think right. you mentioned that. Like, are you even serving your customers? And you need to tell your customers that, right? And the more you can shape that, whether that's word of mouth or just targeted campaigns, um, the more success you're going to have. And I think that those those four things, you know, who you are, who needs to know, how are you going to tell them, and then like what what do you stand for is something that even, you know, as an engineer or a person that's looking to get a job, you have a brand. A Absolutely. You know, as a human being. Like, yes, you need to think about percent. yourself in those four ways. And like, yeah. Um, 
and, and not to go thing. fully political and let's not do that let's really you know let's let's really not do that on this call but if you think about people as brands think about donald trump and think about joe biden right like if you were you know, if you were just going to be neutral and binary on the on the political aspect but just to, to define them as a brand they each have a very unique brand output that they put out there into the world and you either resonate with it or you don't right and that and is essentially so what an organization is doing and people got so excited you know like when dwayne johnson's like the rock he's like i'm gonna I, I might run for president right he teases that and people freak out right because they're like his brand is so strong and he has he can just like will the audience so right just, yeah um yeah so brand is not again just like a company it, it can definitely be a person and then the second part of that is if you are really interested in i i for our listeners, just kind of getting a high level overview of brand, like the brand gap um, by Marty Newmeyer yes. is like a wonderful short read. All of that content on branding. is fantastic. I, I can't recommend that enough. I'm sure you guys probably, anybody that comes in, if they haven't read that, there's probably a problem at your company, right? There's uh, yeah, it's funny. You know, there have been people that have consumed a lot of that content to focus on, and there are some that are still, you know, because not that you want to say that reading and learning is not important, but I think some of us within the organization are also kind of like instinctual or kind of play a different way as opposed to reading, well, this is how that person does it. I'm gonna mm -hmm. use their language or their dialogue as maybe a, a somewhat or more organic. But to to the Marty point, we've had present and past team members that love that content so much that we even have like Marty Neumeyer in Slack, like emojis. So yeah. like, you know, they're getting the like, the Marty emoji for like doing something really good from a brand perspective and stuff. So yeah. That, so can you help us understand again, um, you're a veteran at this now and you probably distilled this down into the, the brand offerings that you provide or that you talk to with clients, you know, what are the primary functions? Can you, can you break that down for us? Sure. Um, yes. Talk to uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, do you want me to dig into just our services current and future? Uh, sure. I, I think it's more just like, again, if you were to approach somebody and be like, Hey, what, oh, are the primary what are the primary functions that you're going to give me, Bill? Right? Like, yes. tell me about brand. Like, how is it going to help me? Okay, and I, I want to end on because I have a point in my mind that I think is worth sharing, even for myself. I kind of just like to need to spit this out. Maybe it'll become sticky for me. What is brand? Like we just did this whole big spiel on what is brand. Maybe the answer to that is simply brand is a feeling. Period. It's literally just that simple. It is a feeling that you're going to get, and whether it's the design that's giving you that feeling, whether it's the sounds, whether it's the smells, whether it's the customer service, whether it's the product solving a big problem for you, that is ultimately the brand. And then that's what compounds to become that. Now it resonates with you and it has a place in your heart. Um, all right, so so how do, we, how do we woo somebody and say, hey, this thing we do is really important and these are the things that we do and why it will help you. Uh, historically at Focus Lab, that has been easy-ish. I think that's an important-ish. Um, because the majority of our sales to date, incoming leads, new projects has, has been incoming. We're not going out trying to persuade people on the idea that brand is important necessarily. Um, by the time people are coming to us, they already understand that to be true. So at that point, we're basically trying to tell them why we're better and different than the other five agencies they're speaking with. Having said that, we are growing, we wanna have a larger reach, we wanna be seen as even more kind of like um, distinct thought leaders, not just really good designers and, and writers on Dribbble and these other kind of like smaller platforms, if you will. So that will result in us going out there and having to do what you're saying. Hey, hey company, you would really benefit from a branding exercise. By the way, that's what we do. This is how it will help you. Um, for us, 
we're going to start to become really, really opinionated on the fact that there is no denying that brand is very potentially the most important thing an organization needs to think about. That's where the whole root, that is the beginning of the value prop. Um, companies that focus on features and lowering pricing and getting into this kind of like commodity race, if you will, those companies lose at the end of the day. Nobody's like, you don't get pumped about milk because you paid five cents cheaper for this other you get pumped about the brand you're buying into and it costs more <laughs> apple is a fantastic example of that right like you put those phones side by side with an android phone and apple mm -hmm. phone the android phone might actually be significantly better me as a terrible apple fanboy will just buy the apple phone i won't even give android the chance because it doesn't matter to me i'm buying the brand the one I love right now, the story, the kind of the darling here for me has been Peloton. I think that they've yes. done an amazing job yes. of taking a, a market that was basically owned by other companies. You know, Nordic Track would have had a huge leg up if they would have yes. kind of coalesced around their brand and really delivered a community. But this is a feeling that they're delivering. They're not delivering just beautiful visuals because everybody's exactly matched right. or copied what they're doing visually. It's the community. It's like it's how you feeling. feel and how they talk and how they use Instagram and their different social networks. They're communicating a lifestyle, um, and that's the that's the brand. It's a it's a lifestyle, right? The same People as Soul, Soul Cycle. I think I think Soul Cycle does the same thing, right? Soul Cycle kind of tapped into that, like you're part of something bigger than just a, a you know a bike. <laughs> yeah, people don't connect with um, people don't connect with features necessarily, right? Like I don't I don't get excited about a faster microchip, if you will. But I do get excited to buy into an organization that stands for something that aligns with me and has a similar kind of like passion or values, et cetera. I think Peloton is a great example. I am a new Peloton owner. I can tell you that they do a fantastic job all around. It is extremely sticky. And you're right, Nordic Track, that was their world to lose. They just, they had a different angle on it. And Peloton, you know, no. I'm actually yeah. curious on uh, your take on kind of where do you see that split between features and brand? So because you can have a fantastic brand or put so much money into it, but if your product is crap, you still are selling crap, right? That's right. It's, it has it to live matter. up to it. it right. Has to, so, it, it, they're not, you need both of them at the end of the day, right? The, the ideal, like the pinnacle is to have both of those things figured out. But I think the way that that we argue, which is, you know, it's not necessarily black and white, although we will present it more black and white-ish and less gray, which is, yeah, but you can also have a fantastic product. Let's just say, like, again, like maybe Nordic Track's latest bike, which I have no idea about, and I'm, gonna, and I'm not even going to say that's a marketing issue. I'm just going to say it's like a brand that is not top of mind. Um, because they're missing the brand portion, the bike becomes irrelevant. So I think if I'm going to try to figure out where that line is. It's somewhere in there, but ultimately to be long-term successful, you do need both, right? The brand needs to be kick-ass. Tesla can't have a, a killer brand in a really crappy car. Like there's a, that falls off a cliff at some point, you know? I, I think that's what we see in exactly on your uh, example with Tesla. There's so many other electric cars right now. In 2020, Tesla is not the only brand that provides that experience, but because people know Tesla as to what it stands for, kind that's of right. their default goes to Tesla and not to a Nissan Leaf. Yeah, right? and that's also uh, not because they were the first out. I think it's easy for people to make those types of arguments too. Well, Tesla was the big, they got out early and they're ahead of everybody. They got the mind share. It's like, no, no, 
there's a thousand examples of companies that came out as a third, fourth, fifth, sixth in that path. And they can they come to dominate. And and what we will continue to say is brand is a humongous part of that. Is it the only reason? Well, it can't be the only reason, but depending on how you think about brand, everything is wrapped into brand. People buy into a mission, right? We're buying into Elon Musk's vision of the future. We're not necessarily buying Tesla because it has a bigger screen. That's definitely a cherry on top. I mean, I love that. I'm like, man, look at the size of that screen in that car. I want that as a, you know, a tech lover. So yeah, brand is um, brand is a big deal. So I don't even know that I've answered your question yet. Um, let's talk a little bit specifically about so like what that what does Focus Lab do that affects these things? So our our primary client and the way that we will position ourselves even um, harder in the future is B two B tech that has been organically growing as just a staple client for us. We really in, enjoy that world. Uh, it's a good cross section cross section for for us. And it's also a world that from a, even just from a viable business perspective, in my opinion, is not slowing down. It's only speeding up, very sustainable. Uh, contrast that with if, if, God forbid, with COVID, if like all of our clientele was a hospitality or entertainment, right? That would have been a, a pretty rough sledding event for us. But B2B tech, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, great, this is an environment for us. Like we're going to thrive here, but we need a company like organization, uh, like Focus Lab put us out there in the world with our new brand, what is our mission, et cetera. Um, so what are our services? Going back to that. Uh, strategy, right? Like starting with strategy, what's the strategic thinking? Really dialing in to uh, their customer, their user base, um, psychologically, all these, you know, what other brands do they resonate with? Who, who are you battling against? What is their position? Even getting visual. What do they look like visually? What do they speak like? Trying to make sure we separate from those types of organizations for our, for our customers. Then go into the design phase. Parallel to the design phase, we're also running um, communications work. So how do we look? How do we speak? I'm really boiling this down. You're talking about some of these brand projects are six months. I'm making it sound like it's a little three-week fun project. Uh, they are fun, but... I was going to say, this is a whole architecture. Like, there's a lot going in here. Yes, there's a lot. Yeah, so even brand architecture, we're starting to think about those things ahead of time because we can't start to do the brand visuals until we know the architecture of these some of these organizations because there's going to be parent to child, um, and we got to figure out the structure of those. And uh, are they like a FedEx where they all look the same? Or are they like a Unilever where they're all child brands, like very unique, different brands? So all of that work, let's just call that prep strategy, highly important. Uh, then we go into the the meat of the project, which is usually what the clients really love. Unfortunately, it's not the strategy is not important, but people want to see how does it look, how does it manifest. Um, and then you get to the back end of the project, which is getting all their assets created, big hefty style guides, so that they know how to um, maintain consistency internally. They've got all these new visuals, they got all this new language. That is a huge part of what we push and preach. At Focus Lab, yeah, you got all this great work from us, but if it is not consistently used, you're just driving your new car around, just like banging into stuff, right? And it's it's not really a great new car anymore. It's kind of like a beat up hunk of junk. So we really we we press on that a lot, and we've actually added a new service to 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 help our clients in that effort. Um, we stay on; they basically can hire us for a retainer. We call it brand support, and we stay on to support them for six to twelve months post project, almost as a just an arm of their business, their little design team, if you will, or comps team. Um, because what we found is 
we hand off the Ferrari. I'll call it a Ferrari. Uh, we hand off the Ferrari and then they have major issues. Do they have a design team or writers in-house? Are they too busy to even do the work? Do they have to find contractors and build a new relationship with these people? So now we want to be able to facilitate and help our, our clients with that. So th that is kind of hinting into the future of Focus Lab, which is like, what are these other services that we can build around what has been our flagship that makes for the best offering out there for brand offering and get it off of this, like let's make logos and make it a bigger picture. So I'm actually curious because something that you alluded to is that this process doesn't take a short amount of time, which makes a lot of sense. When you're thinking about a brand for a company, for any sort of organization, you have to think it through. You have to do kind of a deep dive into what the mission is. How do you reflect that into a whole number of assets and kind of the messaging and everything else? How do you measure the impact? So to me, yeah. I'm a very analytical person. I, yeah. I love data. So to me, you know, and especially probably when you talk to managers, the first thing that comes to you is, you know, you say, oh, I need to uh, charge you X thousands of dollars to make sure that we do the end-to-end -end brand experience. But then the question yeah. is, how do I know that it actually works? And right, Bill, why does it take so long? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk. It's The easier one is why does it take so long? That's actually a very easy answer. Um, because then we show them the outline of like, this is all the stuff we're going to do. These are all the things we're going to ask you to do. It's a collaborative process, right? Like there's a ton of homework that's, especially in those first three to four weeks of you got to give us stuff that you already know, metrics that we can look at, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're going to design all these things week after week after week. We need you to give us all your feedback week after week, you know, and all that adds up and then you cannot accomplish that in like six weeks. So that's actually pretty easy. Um, that, that hurdle, if you want to call it that to get over the, how, how do we determine the ROI is ultimately like the hardest question there is. It is up there with what is brand, right? You're back into that whole like philosophy. It's, it's more emotion. It's more art than science. You cannot specifically measure it. Thankfully, um, one of the partners, so there's three partners, call me a designer. Let's really dumb it down here. Call me a designer, call my other business partner, Eric, a developer and then call the third business, our third business partner, Will, he's more growth and sales. He's fantastic at elaborating on why that is not measurable, how that is actually a bad way to look at this thing. Um, so I can do my best here. I guess what I'm telling you is we do have to do that a lot. And that is a question that comes up in, I wouldn't say that is not the lion's share of our like new business calls. But there are a few, and especially when you get to a large organization and maybe somebody in the C-suite is telling their person in the marketing team that is communicating with us, you better be able to give me an ROI metric at the end of this or else we don't know how to measure success. Some organizations, even of that size, they're just not in that mindset. They understand the value. They know it's nearly impossible to measure. And you just got to roll with it because you can't argue that brand is valuable. So it's just it just kind of like depends on like, what do you value then? Do you think that are you going to get caught splitting hairs trying to save a buck or, you know, we're going to spend through three bucks on marketing to get five bucks back? Or are you going to look out at companies like Tesla and Peloton and Apple and say, well, it's obviously working, <laughs> right? Like, and I think another thing that we're able to say, too, is there's not an organization and this is probably a bold statement. So. I'll try to dial it down a little bit. Maybe there are a, a small few. Very few of the people we work with go backwards. Do they propel 10x in one year? Do they propel 2x in four years? Like, you know, everybody's growth is different. 
but our partners are not moving backwards. And we had a very, uh, we were on it at an onsite uh, in Seattle. And in, it was the first meeting with the client in person. This was post-sale. So project has kicked off. And one of the designers on the team has been following us for a while, asked this question, which was a different way about going about this. Um, it's kind of like the answer to the question you posed. He, he said, why does it seem like most of the organizations you work with go on to raise a series B, a series C, a series D, get bought out, get acquired, have all this great success? Why do you think that is? And I think what he was trying to do is throw me a softball in the meeting and say, well, it's obviously focus lab. Um, and my answer was, I can't tell you that it's focus lab specifically, but I can tell you that companies that care about the stuff that we do have a much higher chance at being successful because it, it, that's just the truth. That's just the reality. They're not stuck in the weeds trying to push out another feature to, you know, get a. You mentioned in tech too, like, you know, didn't I understand the space where you're forming around an idea, you know, you're building your company, you know, you've basically like, you know, strap some boots on and just start throwing some code and slinging it together. And like, you got a viable product, right? Your MVP is like strong and you have money coming in and you're like, well, wait a minute. We didn't plan like, to have to like go talk to customers or show this <laughs> right. off and like, cause they're not there this is yet. Not, yeah. This was not like, you know, we built it and they came and now we're like, okay, well we need, we need co coherency. We need like something. Yeah. Who are we? Right? Like we don't really That's do right. a good job of talking about who we are. Yeah. Um, and you see that so much like in the startup world, uh, you know, sometimes there's a really strong designer on the staff and they just kind of like one man single, like pull the whole company through like, but that's few and far between. I feel like, um, a lot of times you're dealing with developers, right? And a, a business person that's like put this company together. Yeah. 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 So I, again, I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does, which is like, how do you measure the ROI? How do you know exactly what you're spending? You're going to get back. You either trust that that is true and that you can't measure it or you don't. And very few people come that come to us. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying very few, maybe one in 30 or something are so hard nosed on the, if you can't show me an ROI, then I'm not comfortable entering into this project, right? We just have to change their mindset. Well, and I think this is where the important part that you called out earlier is the working backwards, where you actually start from, I want to be at a point where my customers see this, where my customers perceive this, they trust the brand, they know that what I'm doing is actually helping solve their problem, instead of just kind of starting with like, let's throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And then right. we'll decide, you know, which way we go, which can be a way to do certain things. But I, I can't see brand being one of them. You guys surely do like, I mean, I'm not really attached to the brand world anymore. I'm in the product world. But in the product world, when we're doing research, right, there's there's qualitative research that we'll do uh, where we go out and we assess the product as is. And then we come back yep. and do an audit after that. Right. We do research on it after the fact and we kind of get anecdotes and um Word, word of mouth from the users, like this feels so much better or they kind of talk about their experience uh, with the product. It feels like brand could be done almost in a similar way, right? Like you can kind of pre-audit and kind of get some research ahead of time and then like after you launch this new brand, uh, see what people think of that. So is that a tactic um, um, it's a, to understand the impact? The first part of what you've said is certainly helpful and we do that which is the what has worked thus far what is not working where are you trying to go and, and where are the gaps now that we're going to try to fill in this project what doesn't necessarily work i think depending on 
what lens you're looking through, but most of the lenses that people are looking through in this in this way, which is, okay, so did what we just make, is it working yet? Do we wanna get it in front of our team before it launches? Are we really measuring how happy people are on launch day? You know, all of that stuff is actually, uh, it's really slippery and it can often be a trap because if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, uh, a new logo, a new color palette, typography, position in the market and all that is, it takes time for that to produce. You can't just say, hey, segment of my customer base, do you like this new, like it's it's an arbitrary question to them at that point. It's, it's a personal bias. Like, uh, yeah, I actually don't really like purple. So does that mean now the brand isn't going to be, the new visual identity is going to be successful because the customer base doesn't like purple? It's like, no, they don't know the answer yet, actually. Let them live with it for five years. Let them get a, a new perception of what purple means in their life, right? Like your brand is now giving this this new feeling and they're like, oh my God, I actually love purple. Why do I love purple? I can't figure it out. Oh, because the product that I love most in my life is purple. And now I have a new relationship with the color purple. So, so no, you can't really measure it after because it's still too vague and it takes too damn long. If that's the angle that you yeah. were speaking about, I might have kind of like taken that further than you were meaning. Um, but yeah, it's it's not as easy as that. It's easier to do the research and see. It's easy to look backwards. It's much harder to look forward and measure like you know specific tipping points. Mm -hmm. Well, and correlation is not causation. So sometimes like you you have to distinguish between the data as to what what actually what's behind the change. Right, and you're you're still left with this like, well, what was it? Because you've got all these artsy fartsy stuff. Like, how does it make me feel? And and that is so wildly different per person that it just becomes really hard to measure. So as hard as it is to say, yeah, I can't really measure it. So let's not even try to trick ourselves and try to measure it. Right. Let's just right. know that it has influence, it is valuable, and it is one piece of the pie that will make us successful and we need to invest in it. There is a leap of faith that comes with that, right? And I would also, you know, it's like, Sometimes you got to jump. Airbnb rebranded. They jumped. Everybody hated it, right? Airbnb came out. And we're, now I'm going back to brands as a visual exercise. But the new visual identity of Airbnb when it came out, I never seen any new visual identity get like smashed that hard, right? It looks like this. It looks like that. It's, it's overly sexual. It was stolen from the you know 1940s or whatever. You know, everyone had something to say about it. Airbnb doesn't care. They didn't change, they literally didn't even change anything. They didn't even like entertain a conversation. It doesn't matter. Now we send out a form at the beginning of our projects. It's one of, it's part of the questionnaire. It's where we get our first download um, from our new partners. And one of the questions is what brands, um, basically what brands resonate with you the most, but it, it needs to be, it should be more targeted, which is like, you know, for your customers. Airbnb shows up in that sucker all the time now, like all the time. It's like Apple, <laughs> Nike, Airbnb, right? So, you know, if we just want to put a shining example on, you can roll out a new brand of visual identity because it's more about the purpose, right? Like Airbnb as a product was evolving and it was evolving in a great way. They had a mission, which is this idea of belonging and community. And that's what people resonate with. You don't have to worry about a bunch of people hating your logo. How, how do you position that with clients? Because I feel like every couple of years, there's a new case or a new example that pops up. You know, the Facebook feed gets redesigned and all of a sudden you have all these groups pop up and like, I'm quitting Facebook because the feed is <laughs> yeah. not what I expected it. Or yeah. the shade of it's blue nice. is not the same, right? 
Uh, same happens when, uh, you know, iOS, when they went back from yes. the yeah. uh, skeuomorphic design to the more flat, everyone's like, yeah, I'm quitting iOS because this is totally not the design that I signed up for. But then it kind of tapers down. So then you end up with customers saying, oh, I get it. This makes total sense. And now looking back, you're like, yeah, this design makes a lot of sense. How do you set this expectation with clients where they probably want to expect, like, you know, we rebrand, we built this whole visual identity, we change our messaging, customers will love it. And instead, you get the Airbnb. What yeah. happens then? So we're hyper, obviously, we're like hyper aware that this is a thing. Um, so we want to set a proper expectation for our partners. So there's a there's a presentation that we give early in the project that is separate from the production work that's happening, which is called like the brand rollout presentation. It's an hour long presentation. We talk about all the things they need to plan for in the rollout, who should be doing what, different ideas of things that they could do internally and externally with their team, with clients, things that they could make um, to have actual tangible parts of the brand because now everything's so digital. Uh, in a, and there's a section in there, which is like the haters are going to hate section of the brand rollout. And it is absolutely, this is going to happen. I, to what degree we don't know, because we don't know how like fanatic your customers are about your brand necessarily. Sometimes we're working with people that they know their, their visual identity. Let's boil it down to that for this example. They know their visual identity is not great. Their customers know, wow, there's a, now there's a motorcycle going by. Can y'all hear that? That was super loud in my ears. Um, sorry, going back. So we set expectations with them. It's absolutely going to happen. And we just let them know to varying degrees. But and then we just we we come around with the Airbnb example, the Instagram example, uh, Uber, like you you name it, right? Like everyone's out there going, oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But the thing is, those people don't understand all the decisions and why they were made. And you can't expect them to, but you do have responsibility in that, which is a brand rolling out is not, hey, here's my new logo. You slap it on Twitter and you like walk away from it kind of thing, right? Like a, 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 an actual brand rolling out is a story. It's a narrative. What are we what, like? What is the new mission that this company is going after? What services do we cut out so that we're more aligned? What's the story? And then you serve in the visuals and the communications behind that. And then people go like, oh, I get it. It makes sense. I wouldn't have made that or I don't like that color, but like, I get it. It's when people just drop stuff blindly on there and say, hey, here's here's the new us. It's our new logo. It's like, eh, you, I either like it or I don't. I, how do you make that meaningful? Because I feel like one of the areas that we kind of hear every once in a while when a new brand rollout happens for whatever company, you have customers that kind of, you know, uh, read the blog post announcing the new logo, the new design, and that logo and design goes in depth about, you know, we're a company that is oriented in helping people and helping them be their best selves. And people are like, yeah, that's bullshit, whatever. Like, I, I'm just, I just care about booking a room to Airbnb. I don't care about how your logo represents kind of the, your, your vision for the future. So how do you make that meaningful that, you know, actually the brand stands for something rather than just marketing speak for something that totally just makes no sense for kind of the common folks. So at the end of the day, you just got to try to come off as authentic as you can, right? Like not everyone's going to buy into your aspirations and, and, and maybe they don't really have to, maybe that's not the ultimate goal, right? You certainly want your team to be buying into the mission and the aspirations and the bigger picture and 
and all of that, but maybe it is not the goal to have the entire customer base emotionally thrown by your new rollout video. Like you would want some of them, that would be great. Like that you actually like triggered that event and somebody like, wow, that made me like, that really got me. But like, you know, you're not going to get everybody like that. And, and that's fine again, because it's still this long-term play. Elon didn't come out and say, we're going to change the world and, you know, we're going to make electric cars. And we're all like, yes, it's the best thing ever. We're like, okay, let's see it. Like prove it. And now we're like, dang, he's really doing it. Okay. We're bought into that mission. We and, get it. And then when he says that he's going to start selling tequila, everybody wants to buy that in a flame. <laughs> right. right? You know what I'm saying? He's like the greatest yeah. salesman ever. It's like, <laughs> yeah, no marketing, right? That's his claim to fame. I don't market at all. And, uh, because I mean, there you go. There's your purest example of a brand. I would say that market, uh, Apple, I mean, they certainly market, but I don't see an Apple commercial every day, you know? Then you think of like active sports GoPro. Like to me, that comes out as like, when you think of, you know, cameras for any sort of outdoor activities, that's that's the go-to, even though there's many brands that you can use for that. When your name becomes the, like your brand yes. becomes the object, that's when that's you know right. you've won. Like right, Kleenex, Band-Aid. Anybody calls a handheld game a Game yes. Boy, right? Like, yeah, that is actually, you want to be in that position. That doesn't happen very often. I, I, I had a recent conversation with uh, a friend who's like, I'm going to get an Uber. And he opens the Lyft app and just starts getting like, wait, you thought, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I'm going to get an Uber. That's classic. It, it, the brand itself, like it became, it, it's like Google, right? Like you're going to Google something. That's right. It, yeah, you it is the verb. The verb. Yeah. And uh, yeah. same with Airbnb. I, I think, you know, we, we, we bag on the For example sure. of their design. But uh, when it comes to hospitality and actually finding a room somewhere you're traveling, yeah, there's, I'm sure there's a thousand vacation rental websites, but you're thinking about like, I'm just going to get an Airbnb, like whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's a world we enjoy being in because we feel like it is so powerful. And I think it's easy to argue that it's only becoming more, um, not more relevant because it's always been relevant, but maybe more exposed. Everybody gets it now, right? You can no longer just be the dinosaur that survives on, you know, enterprise software, big cash, but we can be old and stodgy and buttoned up and people, you know, don't actually relate or buy into us, but they do, they do buy our computers. You, know? um, you mentioned like, that doesn't work anymore. You had mentioned that a lot of the work that you all are tackling is B2B. So it's it's serving that like business to business um, That's right. yeah. aspect, and I feel like for me I'm a little bit um, I don't understand the touch points there, right? Because like traditional consumer branding, it's like you have vehicles, you have like a sports team, you know, you have a logo and you have like the jerseys and stuff, and the same thing with like Coke, you know, they have cans and they have advertising and yeah, you know, yeah. it's everywhere. There's print materials too, um, but B two B it seems like it's super niche, like. I need to target people in the C-suite at this company or engineers at this company to then effectively like bubble it up, right? Like we want them to use our software. So how do we get in front of them? What are those touch points? What does that look like? You know, that you've done this for ten, over 10 years. And so you've seen an evolution in the way that media is being used. Mm -hmm. um, what are, yeah, again, like what are you guys honed in on as far as touch points and like the important aspect? I know visual is a key part of it because all this media now has a visual aspect to it. Yeah. What more is there, you know? Yeah. So let me touch on the B2B real quick too. Um, B2B is, is, gonna, is going to be a strategic way for us to position ourselves as the leader within a lane, but it doesn't mean that that is our only lane. Uh, Cause it, maybe I'm just, you know, 
speaking for myself because I, I want to know this to be true and it will be true, which is we're still going to work with other fantastic organizations, right? Like even, God, even, even in the past two years, it'd be very easy for me to rattle off totally different than B2B type of organizations, right? Like we did a beach arcade in Delaware. Fantastic. We're like, yes, sign us up. Um, we've, uh, earlier this year, last year, we just finished up branding for a brewery, uh, which is run by past and present gang members. Um, like for us really it's more important to, are we working with good people? Um, that's probably the, the most, that is the most important mm -hmm. thing, but B2B back to your question, when we are in a B2B vertical, like how do we kind of niche into that? A lot of that has happened organically. We didn't start that way. I think it just so happened because of our presence on dribble, uh, in platforms like that, it lent itself to that type of customer base. You didn't have a random local mom and pop restaurant looking at Dribble to find someone to make their new brand or website, but you did have companies, I mean, call them whatever you want, the Shopify's of the world, the world, crypto Twilio's, the, yeah, crypto, like any, anybody that was like more aligned with maybe who we are as people technologically and, and, and stuff, they would find us there. So they kind of became our customer base. What we realized is like, this is actually a great customer base. We enjoy this work. It allows us to niche down. And um, we feel like it's a very sustainable um, customer base too, because that, that world's, I mean, software to help businesses grow. I've, you know, that's been the world for a while and I don't see it going anywhere. When you're rolling out these brands for those, those businesses, right? Like they just, again, they just have like such a, I feel like their target audience is very, would be very small. Well, am okay, I wrong so, in thinking that? Like, you know what I'm yeah, saying? So like you're getting you're to, appealing the, to a very small subset and like, you know, the, the brewery, it's like everybody that drinks beer, but then like a crypto company, it's like a hundred people in the world <laughs> that are yeah. really important because they're, they will pay a lot of money for that business or that service. But yeah, so here's, it's like, the, here's the thing that you're missing, which is really important. Although we are saying that B2B is our niche at the end of the day, when you are branding, you're basically just talking to people and whether that's a marketing person, whether that's someone that enjoys beer whether that's someone that needs to buy a car, you're still just talking to a person. So it is, It is. although we know that our targets are gonna be like CMOs, right? We wanna get in front of CMOs, people that have that influence within the marketing department that know they need a brand, need a rebrand, et cetera. Like we wanna be in front of those people. That CMO, he or she is still just a person. It's, I, yeah, I need to speak to them slightly different here or there, but I still need to be very authentic, open and honest. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You so, need to appear in their targeted feed, right? Like if they're looking through Instagram, they're right, which is really like, there, like so LinkedIn will be a uh, a heavier usage for us, right? Because that's going to be that world, more C-suite-ish. Where um, Dribble for a long time was very much peer-related, which is good because that is another key demographic for us, which we call embedded peers. Which is we will have people, insiders, if you will, designers, developers, whatever, with inside these organizations like Shopify and. Uh, and such that then say, oh, our organization needs what Focus Lab does. I'm going to make sure I name drop their name so that we hire them to do this. So they do become a target for us as well. You have an ally inside the corporation. The, already. A thousand percent. And that ally is so instrumental to the success of the project because sometimes that ally is actually on the project. Therefore, there's already trust built. You don't have this weird, you know, maybe weird is not the right word, but this kind of like first date feel. Like, okay, here we go. We got to like, 
how do you communicate? How do I communicate? Do I talk really long and annoy you? Like, are you good at giving feedback? You know, you got to do all that, like that first dance when you've got that ally already with a relationship built in and trust, you're like so far out of the gate out of day one. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question. At the end of the day, branding is speaking to people. And right now we're speaking to people in, in a B2B way, which is ultimately like marketing departments and businesses that need to speak to their customers, which are then just people again. Right. So here's another, I guess, here's an example. We did branding for a company, Patriot Software. Consider them like a Gusto competitor. They're in Ohio, not largely known software organization. When we're building their brand, their brand needs to resonate with the people that are using their software, right? Their customer base, which is going to be organizations like us, for example. It could be agencies that want to use like a Gusto type of solution, you know, get your payroll into like a software as a service type of solution. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still just people too, right? Like if anything, like we're niche, but we're not niche. It's like wildly broad, you know, it's like, well, shit, like the demographics of the people that are going to use that are yeah. humongous. So then you just get back to your basics. How do we present Patriot as an authentic, helpful tool that doesn't look like all the people in their space that maybe looks and sounds different. And then we show the value of using their service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't think that, I guess to, to close the loop, maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't think that is just where like, we're going to become robotic and just know how to do C-suite talk all day. C-suite, C-suite. It's, it's not that, you know, it's like, we got to be able to talk to everybody because every brand, although they're B2B are still pretty wildly different. Um, on who they might be reaching to, you know. We we so talked our, a lot about. Oh, I guess I, I was going to ask. We you know we talked a lot about kind of the the inner workings of uh, branding, what goes into the process. The one topic that we have not touched on that we wanted to from the very beginning is how did you get into this? Uh, uh, what was your path yes. to actually uh, being part of kind of the the branding profession? Uh, so my way of life thus far has been wildly organic. Um, I'm not a huge planner as a business owner, um, with 20 people on the team and 10 years in, like I have to be more of a planner now, but I wouldn't say that's like a natural part of my DNA. So the point being, uh, what's the short story? I was always good at drawing and art. I loved it so much that I can clearly recall even like pre-middle school, going over to my my one buddy's house, Anthony, uh, and we would just draw. Like I would, that would be how we would play. Like I would go to his house and we would just draw these epic, like look at my Rambo guy and like with his robot arm and, you know, kind of very comic book driven X-Men or, you know, just like really trying to like think out there and make our own characters, worlds, et cetera, et cetera. So we just draw, 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 draw. Then you get to high school and you're like, well, I don't really want to be a nerdy comic book drawer guy. So then you got to go through your whole life changes of like, you know, listening to music that you're like, why the hell did I listen to that? And you go through all that stuff. Then I go off to college, had no idea really what I wanted to do until maybe sophomore, junior year of college. And that's where that art love came back. And it kind of came back in the wrong way, which is I think I'd be really good at that and that would make college a lot easier. I'm just going to do that thing that I'm really good at. It didn't come back from like a, I found my passion again, but it's I like, did I find it. I want at 101. That's what I want. Right, yeah. I want to get back to easy stuff. Like all these other classes really hard and I'm hating college. Let me, maybe I'll be an art major. 
Um, and as soon as I did that, it did click though. I loved going to all my art classes. I thrived in my art classes. I was now like that art major kid in school that's like, you're kind of like the brown noser. All your projects are really great. You work extra long on them and all the other kids, it's their elective, right? They don't, they just want to get in and get out of it. Um, <laughs> and I just, I thrived in it so, so well. Um, but then you come, then I come to this transition point at the end of college where I'm saying like, okay, so like how does painting and sculpture and charcoal drawing and all this other stuff, like how does that translate to the real world? Like Man, how do I like make money? Yes. Um, so I was BFA was my major. Um, so I decided, hey, let's just keep on dragging this thing out. Let's go back to school. I don't know what I want to do yet. Let's keep riding the train. So I moved to Savannah, Georgia. I was um, going to go to SCAD, which is a big art school in Savannah, Georgia. And I was going to get my master's degree and MFA uh, so I could be a teacher. Because I figured I like people. I like running my mouth. Maybe I can teach. That seems pretty easy. Trying to take the easy path. I did not end up on the easy path somehow, but I, I seem to keep trying to take it. Uh, so, so I went there financial aid fell through, I decided I'm not paying 30 plus thousand dollars a year for my master's degree because maybe that's a bad decision. I should just buckle down and start doing some. A couple of just arbitrary jobs connected together over a series of years in Savannah and I ended up in this one place, pre-Airbnb. I think Airbnb was actually started in Savannah by SCAD students, I think. That might be wrong. Um, but um, I ended up at a vacation rental company answering phones. This is after college, right? Like 12 bucks an hour, like kind of like early adult life. I probably should have been doing something maybe a little bit better than that. Uh, so I'm answering phones, you know, how many bedrooms do you need? How check out this one on our website? You know, we didn't have all those tools back then, the Airbnbs as well. The, the tipping point for me, and I give her a ton of credit, the woman that owned that business recognized, hey, like you went to school for design, you wanna do our business cards? Oh yeah, like that wasn't my job, but she had me in house. So I did the business cards for the organization. I did um, I did the trifold brochures. I started to now redo their website and all of a sudden, now I was doing all the photography for all the units, all on um, Tybee Island, if it's a little island off of Savannah, Georgia, um, photo shooting, all of those. So now she's got like this passionate, talented designer guy doing all this work. Um, and she was really gracious in, in kind of like farming me out to all of her other business friends, realtors, restaurant owners. It was like within a year and a half, I had enough side work that I told her, I'm like, I think I'm just going to do this and not work here. I really hate that. I feel like you set me up for success and I'm leaving you. But this is really great. I'm kind of like onto a thing. I just get to work at night and like people send me checks. This is this is great. I didn't know this was the future that I had in store. Um, I'll cut out a bunch of years of, of doing that. But, um, <laughs> you know, in between, which is ultimately me meeting my business partner, Eric, who is a developer, was a developer, just as much as I don't design on projects, he doesn't develop on projects 10 years in. Um, I realized I was not a developer and I was making websites that were way above my head and I'm hacking them together in Dreamweaver and just like, you know, now I'm not happy because the design looks terrible because it's like, can't dev it right. So we meet and that is the real spawning of Focus Lab. That is two brains coming together, different skill sets, an absolute yin and a yang. Our personality styles are perfectly contrasted, introvert to extrovert, detail-oriented, not detail-oriented, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's where Focus Lab is born. And then, you know, it's it's been a fantastic and you know, not easy, but it's been a, it's been a great ride since. That's one that's really inspiring because I think that I had like such a such a similar path and it could have went a lot of different ways, but 
running your own business is hard. Yes. Um, and like <laughs> you clearly were on that path. You were trying to choose the easy way and somehow you fell into doing the hard thing. Right? Like now you're doing <laughs> yeah. it for 20 plus people. Um, yeah. how, how did you mitigate the risk? The, the, the Courtney is kind of question. Do I, I think, um, well, before Courtney gets to the actual question, I'll interrupt shamelessly uh, while we're on topic. But um, how did you mitigate the risk? Because it, it, Courtney's right. Starting a company is hard. And the typical path, you know, after college, after your first gig is, uh, oh, you'll take the safe route and go work for some company somewhere. You decided to, you know, get two brains together and start your own thing. Like, how did you take the, the fact that it is a very, very risky endeavor? I think for me, well, I guess I would just say that my risk appetite is high. I have a pretty high risk threshold, not like, not like foolishly high, um, but high enough where I'm like the eternal optimist. I feel like anything is doable. At that point, I didn't really have anything to lose, right? Like I was single, young, living in a small crappy apartment and I had a very you know, I liked my job and I don't want to disrespect that organization, but you know, it wasn't a career. So like, you let's were hungry, just do right? this. Like, you... Yeah, let's do this. So like super hungry. I'm, I am also, that's, I think hungry is a great word. I was super hungry for it. Where contrast that against my business partner, Eric, his risk appetite is much lower. At that point, he had already had his first child, had a wife and all that. So I went out first. And as we started to make more income and he could see that there was actually like a stable future there, then he joined in. Um, so we, we, to be really clear here, we started the business together. He was still had his main job while working on this with me. And I was just out there free floating going like, I'll eat PBJ every day. Like as long as I can survive, I'm fine. So that's why I think that, I didn't, that, you know, I yeah. also was naive, right? Like I didn't know how hard running a business of 20 people now would actually be. It all right. just felt like new frontier. Let's go do it. It's going to be awesome. And in it, it has been in a ton of ways, but I didn't know how hard. Right. I, I think that's that's an important thing that you also called out is the the risk profile. And the risk profile shifts, right? When you're when you're that's single, right. you have no kids, uh, you can take on these kind of endeavors. And uh there was a write-up by Mark Andreessen on um, you know, the 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 career path of a PM, and he kind of hammered at the exact same points that you called out where one, your risk profile, you have to understand what it is. Uh, because if you have no savings, you have no fallback, then it probably doesn't make much sense to kind of go on a high risk route first, right? But maybe at some point in the future, but at the same time, you have this, this other part where once your risk profile shits, you know, you get married, you have kids, you no longer have that same flexibility, I guess. That's right. Yeah. I had all the flexibility in the world. <laughs> Selfishly, I wanted to ask a question about how you run your internal team because, um, again, we're in kind of mere roles. I'm at Microsoft and working within a team, but we still have to do a lot of creative work and uh, everybody's been pushed remote. And so uh, your team, I'm assuming, is completely remote. That's right. And how again branding is extremely uh creative based and you got to mm. do a lot of like diverging and exploration and kind of deep just getting together and thinking deeply about the problem space and understanding it really well how do you how have you been facilitating that because i you guys did have an office right like yes we did and we a, even had it all the way up to 
COVID, we actually still have it. How it's getting used is, you know, basically non-existent pretty much. Um, yeah, so I I think it's important and I, I won't go long on it because I know we're, we're getting long-ish here, which I'm fine with for what it's worth. Um, we've been remote for a very long time, meaning we've had remote team members almost since the beginning. Like team member number four, eight years ago, was fully remote. That was Charlie Waite, fantastic long-time all-star alum at Focus Lab, um, works at Uber now. Um, he was at GoPro as well. Uh, and he was remote. He lived in Alabama. We were in Savannah. Our team continued to grow, call it 80-20, local to remote. So we were still adding local people and we wanted to grow that way. That was intentional. And then we were, when, when it was right, we would add a remote person. Um, so fast forward through all that growth, last year we recognized we're about 50-50 if not skewed the other way now, 60-40 remote to local. And it was clear to us that the future would, it would just continue to trend that way. There'd be no reason for us to want to hire local if we have a fantastic pool of talent and we want to hire in other places. We're already set up for it. We've already been using Zoom for God knows how long, like, you know, forever. Um, so, so the structure within our organization was already there. Then COVID comes along, we go, well, now we really don't need the office. Um, so we're going through that right now, you know, and we'll figure out when and how we get out of that office and we will just stay completely virtual. But to your question, like, how do we facilitate all that? Well, it's, a, it's almost a challenging question for me because I feel like we've been doing it for so long now that it just feels natural. Like my gut reaction is like, and you just, we just do all the things that we do. Like, what do you mean? I will you know? say that it's not, it's not an inherent thing though for most organizations. Like it takes a lot of work. I can say right, right now, cause we're going through that growing pain of like people aren't in their normal space and they are just having a hard time adapting. The creatives are at least yeah. to this new way of working, like not being able to just yeah. throw things up on the whiteboard. People talk about this all the time. You can't do this work remotely and i'm like i argue you can but it you has can. to be in the right organization you know i've been different. teams that have yeah and seeing it now seeing a team struggle with it has been really eye-opening i'm like okay i get you i get why people say that now it's not it's not that it can't be done it's that it's hard and it takes really intentional practice yeah and we have been we have been practicing for a long time not in preparation for this but, but that's just because that's where we were like we always had remote people um, I would also say that our size is probably really helpful in that way. Like if, if 60% of the team was already remote and from a creative perspective, uh, creative team members, if you will, the amount of creative production people in the local team now is so small that it, it has been disruptive for a few of those people, but it's a small portion of the organization. Um, you know, for me, it's easy to work from home. I've been working here, as you see on my deck for six years, I'm comfortable in that flow. But some of these people on our team, COVID, they really like going in the office, even if there's in, even not even from a social aspect, but just to get out of their home environment, get into a quiet headspace in the office, put music on and be focused. Now it's like, well, I, I got kids at home and I got virtual schooling. So I, I think it's more of the overall thing as a conundrum and not necessarily that remote is harder. For us. Right. So we do it, we do it in a lot of ways. I mean, if I was going to get down to specifics, I would tell you all the things that we do on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis to make sure that our remote environment at Focus Lab feels as connected, collaborative, fun, joyous, social as it can. And, and we and do US, a lot. Yeah. And you astutely called out the fact that 
working remote right now is not the same as working remote under normal conditions. That's right. I think that's a very, very important point because a lot of people miss it and think, well, it's easy to work remote, right? Like you can work from anywhere. It's like, well, yeah. And you have kids screaming at home, and you have <laughs> right. dogs barking. Right. And then you yeah. have, you know, oh my gosh, this kid dropped the laptop. We need to run in the other room and like set up Zoom again for their school. Yeah. Uh, like all these things that pile up that is not something you typically have in a remote work environment. And then you take that and you scale it to your entire organization where everyone is struggling with this now. So the productivity drops, everyone is just kind of under a lot of stress and it's just, it, it's not the same. Yeah, I think the the fact that we've been doing it long enough has made it easier to weather the stress. So instead of going from a zero to a hundred of like full comfort to full stress, you know, it's like, you know, somewhere in the middle and affecting certain team members more than others. And I think we just try to be really open and honest as an organization, take the time you need. Oh, you know, we are, we are extra welcoming and, and open about all the, like, if you've got issues, just, you know, don't even worry about it. You got to, your kids got crazy stuff going on at school. Like, don't worry about check out as long as you just communicate with your PM or, you know, is your work ship, like do whatever you need to do. We are definitely a people first organization. So we do as much as we can around that. Um, and I th so for that reason, too, I think COVID and virtual work has been easier, I hope, for our team members because of that. Right, right. So, Bill, I know we're, we're getting to time. Uh, where can people learn more about what you do online? Uh, yes, 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 yes. So online, um, Focus Lab LLC is basically the handle for most of our things. That's a whole nother episode. We'll talk about how the hell we ended up with LLC in our handle. What a nightmare from a URL perspective. Uh, we're working on that 10 years later. Uh, so yeah, so like Instagram, if you want to follow a lot of our work, that's definitely going to be the most visual place for you to consume the work at Focus Lab LLC. Um, go to our website is really where you're going to see the, the majority of like the big case studies, the real, the thinking, the articles. And what about you Bill, personally? Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Instagram, if you're going to follow me for, for Focus Lab work visuals, follow me also on Instagram at Bill S, middle initial S, Kenny, K-E-N-N-E-Y. Uh, I'm getting pretty active on Twitter again as well. A lot of that's going to be short opinion-based subjects uh, in and around brand and investing. It's like my, one of my new fun passions. Nice. It's going to be exciting to keep learning from you outside of the podcast space as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming over and chatting with us. Uh, I know I, I learned uh, quite a bit about brand that I had no idea about, and it's helpful to get your perspective on it. And I hope that we get to chat with you uh, sometime soon again. And we actually dig into the story of what the LLC and the name <laughs> yes. and the domain name stands for. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, folks. And we'll talk to you next time.